Hey there, Internet. I'm Annie. I'm Kit. I'm Mac. And this is I Will Fight You, a podcast where we've been turning opinion into stone-cold facts since 1986. Today's fact? The world does not need more mummy movies. We're referring particularly to the one starring George of the Jungle himself, Brendan Fraser. It's perfect. That is, as we have decided to call it, the Ur Mummy. You don't need another mummy movie after that one. That one's the mummy movie. We don't need another one. It's worth noting that the 1999 mummy movie is itself a remake. Yeah, so the original The Mummy came out in 1932, starred Boris Karloff. It's about like an hour and ten minutes long. It feels a little gothic slash dark romantic because it's mostly a character drama, except one of the characters is a mummy, is a Boris Karloff, who's very creepy and stares at the camera a lot. He's a mummy that got woke up by someone reading from the Scroll of Thoth, which is super real. Uh Uh-uh. And then he wanders around for like 10 years until he uh, tells some British people where to dig up his girlfriend, who is a priestess of Isis. Then they do that, and then he keeps trying to resurrect her, only she's been reincarnated to a 1930s sexy lady who is half Egyptian. So you would be shocked to know that the leading man does, like, absolutely dick all in that movie. He just kind of wanders around and gets very concerned about things and kisses a girl. She's actually the one that solves the problem by having her, like, old soul in her and praying to Isis to, like, basically burn up the mummy, and she does, and it's great. Uh, but yeah, it's it's actually a pretty good movie, um, albeit with not a whole lot happening. Then they made like a whole bunch of other mummy movies, and then the English made some mummy movies, and you guys, you guys, you guys, you guys, there's a mummy movie from the 50s called The Mummy. It stars Peter Cushing as the leading man, and Christopher Lee as the mummy. My god. Oh my god, I rented it on Amazon and I haven't watched it yet. I'm saving that as an after-dinner mint. Anyway, by comparison, the Mummy movie in 1999 is about a whole lot of people making bad decisions, and then Brendan Fraser, back when he was hot, shoots some guns. And and while there's a bunch of gun shooting, you never see any blood? There's no blood in this movie! It's awesome! It's it's basically, it's an action movie. And did you guys read up on, like, how many different freaking treatments they went through this for this thing before they actually came up with the screenplay? No, um, but according to my Amazon facts, I did hear how Clive Barker was involved at one point, and then they brought Romero in to design the monsters, but they decided between Clive Barker and Romero, it was too creepy, and they didn't want it to be creepy. Oh no, Romero even did a freaking treatment. He wanted a zombie movie. So really, this is the best possible movie we could have gotten out of all that. Oh yeah, because here's the thing. According to Wikipedia on here, Stephen Sommers who eventually led this movie and did the screenplay. He'd apparently been wanting to make a mummy movie for about five years at the point where they finally asked him, and he decided to pitch it with an eight-page treatment and called it a kind of Indiana Jones or Jason and the Argonauts with the mummy as the creature giving the hero a hard time. Giving the hero a hard time. And according to Universal, Babe Pig in the City had sucked so much that they decided to up this movie's original budget from $15 million to $80 million. That'll do, pig. That'll do. My other great thing that I found out about this was that Brendan Fraser was only offered the role after a bunch of people who I can't remember except for one was Tom Cruise. So the fact that Tom Cruise is coming back to make the reboot of the movie shows that you're a bit too late, Mr. Cruise. You had your chance, Tom. Brendan Fraser made the much better film. Because he was hot at the time. Kids, kids in our audience. A, why are you listening to this podcast? We swear in this. B, I realize that now Brendan Fraser is like this weird looking kind of pasty bloated guy who's always plays the dad in kids movies. But you need to understand that in the 90s, Brendan Fraser was hot. Also, he's a complete tsundere. 
and just does things constantly in here. And he's like, it's not like I like you or anything, but here's a bag of archaeological tools. I thought you might need them or something, but it's not like I like you. I think we need to actually talk about this movie and why it's the Ur Mummy. Mm, let's make a note here that this is from 1999 and that there is a lot of CGI in this. Oh my God. And there are glitches where it goes wrong and it's great. It doesn't totally work, but you know what? There's enough practical effects with the mummy himself to actually make this work. So just, you know, bear with us here. Bear with this movie for a little, because they have a little backstory here. Yeah, this movie starts, as all delightful garbage movies do, with a narrated prologue that goes on way too long. And is full of complete historical inaccuracies. And complete geographical inaccuracies, too. Because we're setting in Thebes, but for some reason the pyramids of Giza and the Sphinx of Giza are there. Also, it's worth noting that, like, this movie has a whole lot of white Egyptians in it. So we have High Priest Imhotep. And then we've got a beautiful mistress of the pharaoh, Ankh-Sunamun, who is not allowed to be touched by any man. She's naked, by the way. She's using, like, gold body paint with, like, black markings on it. She's completely naked. Other than her nipple tassels, which are gold. I paused on that to check. Anyway, Imhotep and Anuxinamun make out. And his hand smears her skin paint. So a few minutes later, when Pharaoh Seti walks in and he notices this paint, he's like, who touched you? Only I am allowed to. Dude, this is why you have eunuchs. This is exactly why you have eunuchs. Why does your priest have his pee-pee still? Anyway, then we get couples bonding over murder. Anxunamun actually stabs her husband in the back. The pharaoh's bodyguards are all bursting in and um, ready to kill. And she's like, run, Imhotep, because you are the only one who can revive me. And he agrees. And all of his priest buddies hurry and help him out. And then says, and I quote, my body is no longer his temple. And then stabs herself. Holy crud. We then flash to Imhotep and his priest buddies, and they've stolen... Uh, her body, and are on their way to Hanamaptra, the fictional land of the dead where all the treasures lay. Imhotep tries to resurrect Anuxinamun, but he gets caught. Which I want to note here, because I wrote a well, actually, and I know we have all these other inaccuracies, but this one bugged me the most. Since she had killed the pharaoh, who was basically the stand-in for the sun god Ra at the time, her soul would have not gone to the underworld, or the dark underworld as it was noted here, her heart would have likely outweighed the feather of Ma'at, and it would have gone and been eaten by Sobek. I'd also like to just put an asterisk there and then at the bottom of this page just say, by the way, none of us have studied Egyptology in any kind of official capacity, so, um... I mean, we're three nerdy girls, so we each of us had our Egypt phase, but... We absolutely did! Anyway, Imhotep and his priests get caught and then they're punished. The priests are mummified alive, which is pretty metal, although, again, there is no blood in this movie. Imhotep uh, starts going through Hamdai, where he's basically got his tongue cut out and he's wrapped up in, you know, tissues and stuff. And he's put in a sarcophagus and then has scarab beetles stumped over him. Tissues. They wrap him in toilet paper. It's fine. And here's the thing. This this ritual, apparently, if he ever, like, escapes or rises from the grave, he will become a horrible monster with, like, power over the sands and functional immortality. And it's like, okay, this guy murdered the pharaoh. You better turn him into an all-powerful undead abomination. We're great at punishing people. Here's my favorite part about this curse, the Hamdai. They said it had never been done before because they feared it too much. So here's what must have happened. Some guys were just sitting around like, you know, it would be really metal. What if we like cut out his tongue and then like bury him alive and then uh and then his pal's like, oh um 
Flesh eating beetles. Yeah, just like beetles, like everywhere, just all over him. Just blah, 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 blah. And somehow that translates to immortality and evil and also tapping into the power of God to bring down the biblical curses. They just had like a list of things we know about Egypt and there was very little research involved. And then they just decided, OK, let's take this list and let's put it in the movie. So like literally everything that the writers knew about Egypt is crammed into this movie. None of it with any sense of like historical historical accuracy or thematic resonance, and it's magnificent. So we skip ahead to 1923, where the French Foreign Legion and... I want to say the Bedouins? And then uh, among the French Foreign Legion, we have Brendan Fraser, who is thankfully wearing a differently colored jacket than everybody else, because otherwise we couldn't tell that he was Brendan Fraser and on the cover. And he's standing next to Benny, who's a French uh, soldier. Benny's Hungarian, actually. He's also like, my brother and I had this very lengthy conversation where we were like, is Benny supposed to be an offensive Jewish stereotype or just an offensive Eastern European stereotype? Possibly both. Basically, the French commander turns tail and runs because everything in here is a terrible stereotype. There's this great moment where like the commander runs away and the camera pans down to Brendan Fraser and Benny. Brendan Fraser has a name in this movie, by the way, but we're just going to keep calling him Brendan Fraser. And Benny just turns to Brendan Fraser and says, you just got promoted. <laughs> and he takes charge. And he's like, everybody, we're going to shoot on three. What follows is a really like lengthy battle scene that is only relevant because of where it happens, which is Hominoptera. Like nothing else about the scene is relevant. And yet it goes on for like 10 minutes. There's a group of Medjai who are the descendants of the Pharaoh's guards just hanging out, watching this whole thing happen and deciding whether or not to interfere because, you know, they're kind of walking over an immortal undead mummy, uh, Satan. Brendan Fraser gets to that statue of Anubis. He almost wakes it up because there's little susurrus evil whispers and then he just decides to run away. This doesn't even really serve as an establishing character moment for Brennan Fraser. That comes later. All this is for is like to establish that he was at Hominoptera. And honestly, he tells the characters that later in the movie. So this entire scene could just be cut. I feel like this was something that was added later when test audiences like thought that Brendan Fraser wasn't the main character on the box. But I, you know what? I'm okay with it being completely useless because we at least get Brendan Fraser being witty and running around looking hot. I'm going to be real here. I completely forgot this whole first 15 minutes of this movie happened. Like in my recollections, there was maybe a little bit of a backstory. And then we went straight to Evie. I'll also be honest, from my memory of the movie, the one time I saw it, it was mostly after the mummy was risen. And I completely forgot the first half. And I don't know how I forgot it because it's amazing. So Brennan Fraser runs off and the Medjay are like, should we kill him? Their leaders like, no, the desert will kill him. Spoilers, the desert doesn't kill him. I also want to point out now the leader of the Magi is, I don't think we ever learned his name on screen, but this character's name is Ardeth Bay. And he is a hottie. He is the best. He was actually supposed to have full face tattoos, but the director was like, no, this actor's too hot. We can't do that. He's too hot. And what you're going to discover in this movie, and this is how John put it last night, is this is mostly like a bookish librarian just surrounded by hot guys. She's having the time of her life. 
Oh, what a good movie. But now we go to Evie, the best character ever. It's three years later from this pointless battle, 1926. And she is dressed in the cutest outfit, and I want to play a character who wears that now. Her name is Evelyn slash Evie. And you know what's funny is that I thought that, like, this was going to be something where she's just clumsy and that's her character trope. Because, you know, she's very pretty and smart, so she has to have some kind of flaw. But I don't really think she's all that clumsy in the rest of the movie. Her major character flaw is the same major character flaw that everybody has, which is that she makes bad choices. So Evelyn Carnahan makes all the books fall over and we feel bad for her, but she is very smart. Yeah, she actually knocks the stacks over in a domino. It was just like every librarian's nightmare. Like I once tipped an entire truck of books onto myself and that was bad enough. Her boss comes out and yells at her and he also says the line, straighten up this mesh of her, which is great. And I want to use that from now on. And then we get a mummy fake out. She hears something in the back and she goes to a room full of sarcophagi and you think the mummy's going to pop out at her. But no, it's her shithead brother. Jonathan. Jonathan is good at two things, petty theft and being drunk. He was hanging out in a sarcophagus with an actual corpse just to give his sister a spook. And also he says, I was at a dig in Thebes and we found this little box. Is it cool? Did I get something? And Evie's like, I think you did do it right for once. Yeah, because she presses a button on the side and it pops open and there's like a map inside. There's this really cool cut directly to the curator's office because this movie, it's worth noting, the first act of this clips along really, really fast. You can tell that the movie itself is really eager to get to the part where the mummy starts killing people. So they tell the curator that this is a map to Hominoptera, which is apparently at this point mythical. And then the curator's like, oh, well, this seems really stupid. I don't think you should go there. That sounds fake. Whoopsie doodle, I set the map on fire. Oh, silly me. How did I do that? I'm totally on the up and up. Don't go to Hominoptera, which doesn't exist. Don't go there because it's not real. But don't. Everybody who goes there dies, but it's not real. So you shouldn't go there in the first place. He totally doesn't have any ulterior motives at all. They go to find out who Jonathan stole it from because Jonathan ended up having pickpocketed somebody who was drunk at the bar. And it turns out it's Brendan Fraser who's in jail for having a good time. He had a very good time. We're never presented with what exactly he did. It doesn't matter. He's in prison. And about to be hanged. He convinces them that yes, he does know where Hominoptera was. His hair is all over the place. He's in clothes that haven't been washed for a while. And then he kisses Evie. After punching Jonathan. Yeah, so that's a sexual assault. But okay, we're moving on. So Evie barters for his life by telling this dude who I don't know if he even ever has a name. Uh, He's just called the warden in the credits. Awesome. And he's played by Oma Jalili. And this is like his first movie role. And this character is like a character bit that he does in like stand up and TV and movies and stuff. And it's a thing. Oh, great. Good, good, good. This character, it's worth noting, is another stereotype. Oh, yeah. No, this movie is just riddled with them. So Evie does barter for... 25% of what they can find at Hobbinoptera if they let him live. And by the way, Brendan Fraser almost died during this scene. Brendan Fraser, the real person, not the 1930s Brendan Fraser in this 1999 movie. He actually almost strangled here. Oh my God. Also fun note, the production had the official support of the Moroccan army and the cast members had kidnapping insurance taken out on them, a fact which Summers disclosed to the cast only after shooting it finished. 
This is the best movie ever made. So, Evie saves Brendan Fraser's life. An ambiguous amount of time later, Evie's like, I hope he actually knows this because he was smelly and terrible. And then suddenly Brendan Fraser clean shaven shows up and she pauses and just stares at his jets for a bit with her mouth open. And we feel you, girl. Oh no, he's hot. It's basically just, he turns around and, hey. Because he is clean shaven with just a little bit of stubble. He's got that hair that flops over on one eye. He is ruggedly handsome now. And he is in clothes that fit him. He's wearing a shoulder holster. He is. That's a look. We are all Evie. Like I'm gay. I'm not blind. So they're getting on a barge that is going to take them down the Nile to, I guess, closer to Hominoptera. It doesn't really matter. It's an Egypt movie. Therefore, they had to have a barge sequence. It's fine. There's a brief scene here where Jonathan's playing poker and telling everybody how they're getting to Ananoptra and Brendan Fraser wanders in and knocks him across the head and is like, can it, buddy? There's three cute American cowboys here, along with some British guy in glasses and a fez. He never gets a name. He's just the Egyptologist. These hot cowboys are going to Ananoptra for some reason. And also they're being led by someone who's been there. And then Brendan Fraser discovers that it is Benny, the coward who was more cowardly than he from earlier in the movie. Benny is alive and he's only not not abandoning them because they're only going to pay half when they get back from Hominoptera. And then the cowboys insist they're going to get there first. And they bet 500 bucks on it, which is in like 1926 money is a lot of money. $6,859.86. Jesus Christ. They bet $6,000 cash. They have $6,000 cash. So Brendan Fraser, after he uh, meets Benny, and I think he tosses him into the river because he doesn't like Benny. So into the Nile with him. And he goes over and he thumps a bunch of guns down on Evie's table and starts talking to her. He wants to impress her with all of his weapons. And Evie's like, do you expect us to be shooting many things in the city of the dead? And he's like, yeah, because there's evil stuff there. Evie eventually gets around to asking him about that whole kiss thing. And he goes, I was about to die. It seemed like a good idea. So she gets upset and leaves. And he's like, what? What'd I say? Oh my God. He's totally into her and it's adorable because he's an idiot. Evie, meanwhile, is kind of wandering around her room, sort of love struck and failing to hang things up on hooks and stuff. She's trying to like focus on a book that she's reading about some of the various dynasties and then eventually just puts it down, huffs and says, get a grip on yourself, girl. It wasn't that good of a kiss. It's worth noting that Evie is one of those people who can't read inside her head. She has to read out loud, which will become relevant later. Then she... uh, Gets attacked by one of the Medjai. Yeah, because they've been puttering up on boats this whole time. And he holds his knife against her throat and uh, asks her some questions, namely uh, where the map is. And she's like, it's right over there. And he's like, where's the key? And she's like, key what key? Uh, which is promptly when Brendan Fraser jumps in and starts shooting, but he has terrible aim. Also, like guys pop in from the windows like they're in some kind of freaking like arcade first person shooter game. Like a freaking rail shooter. He puts like 12 bullets into one dude and then hits a lamp and the lamp sets the boat on fire. Yeah, and everything's on fire. And so Evie just grabs a candle and slams it into the guy holding her hostage's eye. And he starts screaming and she dives away. Like she tries to go back for the map and Brennan Fraser basically grabs her and is like, forget it, I am the map. See, you need me. Please need me. And then there's this big fight scene on the boat as everything's on fire and also Medjai are attacking everybody. These action sequences are perfect blends of just comedy and action and cool stuff. This is a joyful movie. 
So everybody jumps off the boat into the river. And so Benny is on the one side of the river and says, hey, Brendan Fraser, I've got all the horses. And Brendan Fraser on the other side of the river is like, hey, Benny, you're on the wrong side of the river. It doesn't really matter. Because they get there at the same time anyway. Benny's basically with the cowboys. And I realized that Benny and the cowboys is a great band name. We cut to more stereotypes. We cut to an encampment where Jonathan is arguing with a guy selling camels and the warden gets kicked out of a tent full of women. Oh yeah, the warden is here. And then Evie rolls up because she was in her nightgown when she got thrown off the boat. Brendan Fraser threw her off the boat, by the way. So she rolls up in like this really hot outfit and then Brendan Fraser is like, oh no, she's hot. Oh boy, boner towns. Boing! And then we get a really long desert travel montage. God, it lasts forever. And then we finally get to Hominoptra, sort of? They have to wait. And she's like, okay, where do we go from here? And he's like, no, you'll see the way. You'll be showing the way, says Brendan Fraser. Also, Benny and the Cowboys show up. Benny and the Jets. This entire group that are all on horses and some of them are camels. They're all here. They all arrived at exactly the same time. They also have like 20 diggers, just like local guys they've hired. As per the huge. So I guess Hominoptera only appears when the sun rises? It's unclear. They see a thing. They run towards the thing. And then Evie, it turns out, is a better camel rider than anybody else. She gets to the city first. And Brendan Fraser has hearts in his eyes. Anyway, after they reach the city, we don't actually see like the $6,000 getting handed over. But we have like Betty and the Jets doing one dig. And then over in the corner, we have Evie, Jonathan, and Brendan Fraser doing another dig. And like one of the cowboys looks over at them and goes, what are they doing over there? Do they know something we don't? And the Egyptologist says, she's a woman. What does a woman woman know everything dipshit because in case you were curious about being sympathetic towards these hot cowboys don't worry about it brendan fraser also comes up and he gives evie a satchel of something he's like hey i uh found these for you but they're like not for you you won't like them or anything yeah i don't know if you like need them or something i don't i don't know what they are it doesn't matter whatever it's not because i think you're hot or smart or pretty or amazing and always it's just i found it and i was like well i don't know what these are she might here you go he stole digging tools for her because all her equipment went down on the barge. So the Americans, I guess they find the chest of Anubis. It's really unclear because they're digging in separate locations, but also whenever anybody gets below ground, they always wind up in the exact same place. As they're breaking in, some of them die. They themselves recognize that they have disposables with them. Let's let the diggers open it. So they get acid in their faces. Meanwhile, Evie and Jonathan and Brendan Fraser are digging around underneath the base of the statue. They find the sarcophagus and Evie sees that there's like a cutout on the lid that the key, which is the little puzzle box thing, fits perfectly into. And meanwhile, the warden is pulling off these beetles. Because he just finds some crap on the wall and decides, hey, I should just start picking these off like fucking candy. And uh, he drops one and it opens up to be one of the flesh-eating beetles. And it goes up his leg and he starts screaming in pain. And then we've got some terrible CGI where his skin is pulsing out. Yeah, so like it burrows into his foot and gets under his skin immediately. And I guess it's just in the subdermal layer. And he starts running by screaming in pain. It's the only part of this movie that's like genuinely a horror thing. Sidebar about these beetles. So scarab beetles generally are not flesh eating, but there have been cases where their larvae or their eggs have been infested under the skin. And then when they're born, they will burst out of the skin, causing ruptures and lesions that way. Generally only happens in unhygienic ways. But also notably, it was noted that in search of food, the only way that a beetle could really generally do this is by going up the anus, because that's where its food is, because it eats feces. And so it would go up the anus and then implant itself in your body and slowly infest outward that way. So what we're saying is the mummy got a beetle up his butt. Like lots of them, in fact. 
flesh-eating beetles are actually a thing. There is a species called the dermestid. Here's the thing about dermestids, though. The adults do nothing but have sex. It's only the larvae they eat flesh. They only eat, like, necrotic dead flesh. Colonies of dermestid beetles are used by taxidermists and various uh, biology departments to clean bones. Basically, if you want to make sure there's no little scraps of flesh left on some bones that you found, you toss them in with the beetles and you leave them for a couple of days. That's awesome. These are both awesome things. For the kids in the audience who are a little terrified by this, don't worry. They only eat dead flesh and they definitely don't burrow under your skin and crawl into your brain. You just learned some f***ing science. So... Setting all of that aside, our heroes are just kind of hanging out, looking at the sarcophagus and reading it because Evie reads everything aloud, including that his name is Imhotep and he probably wasn't very cool. They are interrupted, I believe at this point, by the warden screaming, running past them into a wall and falling down dead. And then that scene's just kind of over. We cut to this scene where they're sitting around the campfire. They're talking about how like Benny and the Jets diggers got melted by salt acid and then Jonathan goes digging around in the warden's bag and there's like this jump scare moment where he goes, ah, and then it turns out that he just cut himself on some broken glass because there's a bottle of whiskey in there. We find out that we're supposed to believe that Evie is half Egyptian. Evie tells us that she is the daughter of a British adventurer. He loved Egypt so much, he married an Egyptian. We're supposed to believe that Rachel Wise is half Egyptian. And also what happens uh, during this bit is that the Magi attack again. And they are surprisingly bad at doing the only thing that they exist to do, which is keeping people out of Hominoptera. Yeah. Brendan Fraser whips out like a stick of dynamite and lights it. Like, what? What you gonna do? And Ardeth is like, okay, we're backing off, but like, leave, please. And that's it? And he is so done? Yeah, you have a day. Leave. Anyway, the next day, which is supposedly like their last day, although I will point out that the Magi never really follow through on this shit. Oh, they super don't. Benny and the Jets finally fish out this box from under the statue of Anubis. And BT Dubs, we've talked about before about a solid gold book of Amun-Ra because the Egyptians definitely used books. Like books with a binding and a spine that open left to right. With pages made of solid gold. The Egyptologist reads, oh, by the way, this box is like totes cursed. And the diggers know what kind of movie they're in, so they run away. They're getting the hell out of Dodge. They know what's happening. They know what's up. Like the curse is specifically whoever opens this box and takes what's inside. If the mummy ever comes back from the dead, he will pursue them and take their organs and fluids. That's weirdly specific that he would take their fluids. And then they're like, okay, we'll just not raise anybody from the dead yet. Let's loot this shit. So yeah, they take out this black book that is apparently the Book of the Dead. And also there's a whole bunch of canopic jars. Which the cowboys are like, hey, these are probably worth money. But before the box opens, it's worth noting, Benny, for some reason, is like, it's the curse! It's the curse! And runs away. So he's not in the room when the box gets opened. Convenient. So then this is the point, I believe, where the other group opens up the mummy. And uh, they open it up. Mummy jump scare! And then Evie's like, I hate it when they do that. By the way, this mummy they've found is still juicy. And also there's like scratch marks on the inside of his coffin. Like he scratched into the wood of the lid with his fingernails. Death is only the beginning. That sounds like he just wrote down his favorite lyric from a metal band. Like on the margins of his freaking biology notes. And then they go back up. Benny and the Jets are showing off like all the stuff they found, including this book. And Evie passes by as the Egyptologist trying to open the book. And she sees that there's a cutout on it and there's a lock on like, so it can't be opened. And she's like, oh, I think you need a key to open that. And then just walks 
past. She's feeling very smug right now. So Evie goes and steals the book and then gets the key from Jonathan, who's sleeping. She opens the book and Brendan Fraser's like, hey, maybe you shouldn't read that. And she's like, no harm ever came from reading a book. I'm going to put my foot down. Don't read the Latin out loud. She reads the Egyptian out loud. Because Evie cannot read except out loud. She reads out the specific portion that brings the mummy back to life. She's open to page one, and I guess it's just right at the top. And then the Egyptologist, like, very dramatically lunges out of his sleep and goes, You mustn't read from the book! And then it's like the, the howling mummy wind, and we cut to, like, the sarcophagus where the mummy jumps to life. And then outside there's a swarm of locusts of all things. Because, you know, Bible? Locusts, which are basically harmless to people. There's this great moment where the Egyptologist is like clutching the book, covered in locusts, whispering, what have we done? And this guy is so dramatic. I love him. There's also a whole bunch of scarab beetles running around because Egypt. They all just sort of try to run away and get out of here. And then somehow they end up falling into the tombs themselves. Evie gets separated because of a trapdoor. At some point, Brennan Frazier just keeps shooting beetles. One of the cowboys has glasses. And at one point he drops his glasses and they get stepped on by, I think, Betty. And so he's just running around, like, patting the ground going, Oh no, my glasses, my glasses, like freaking Velma. I can't see you without my glasses. Anyway, he's wandering around down there and he backs up into the mummy. Then we cut to Evie, who's wandering around down there and she finds freaking Velma and she goes oh thank god you're here I thought I was down here all alone and then he turns around and his eyes and his tongue are missing question if Imhotep took this guy's eyes does that mean Imhotep needs glasses wait a goddamn minute is he just seeing everything super blurry and that's why he thinks Evie looks like a nux and a moon oh my god that would explain it because he finds Evie and he's like oh you're my girlfriend you're my dead girlfriend and then Brendan Fraser pops into the shot is like oh my god Evie there we are she points at the mummy he looks and actually physically like bah! the mummy screams at him Rick screams back and shoots it with a shotgun instantly becoming like the best character in a monster movie ever so they all escape back up to the ground level where all the Medjai are here and they're like, what the fuck did you do? And then the Medjai are like, well, we could kill you, but we're not gonna because now we have to figure out a way to kill this mummy. So you guys better get lost. And meanwhile, Benny's still here. Benny is still in the tomb. And then he finds the mummy and the mummy slowly advances on him. It's this great moment where he like reaches into his shirt and pulls out a, like a little rosary and starts waving it around like maybe this will help. And when it doesn't, he reaches into his shirt and pulls out a whole bunch of other holy symbols. And they're all tangled up in a knot. And eventually, as he's backed up against the wall and the mummy continually advances on him, he pulls out a Star of David and says a prayer in Hebrew, language of the slaves. I feel like Benny is offensive to someone, but I can't for the life of me figure out who. I just know that I feel offended somehow. Benny is a stereotype of something. We're not quite sure what. Meanwhile, uh, we cut back to Cairo. We don't get a travel montage this time. No, we're just right back at Cairo. We're in a hotel room, in fact, that I guess they had. Yeah, I guess this is where Evie lives because all of her stuff is everywhere. And there's this great scene that as Brendan Fraser and Evie are arguing, Brendan Fraser's saying that, you know, we should get out of here. And Evie's like, I brought the mummy back to life. I have to kill it. And he's packing her bags for her and she's unpacking them. And like the blocking in this scene is really, really good. The camera travels with them as they keep moving. It's a really visually interesting uh, argument and I really like it. Like we joke about this being a garbage movie, but this movie was made by someone who knows how to make movies. This is not a case of incompetence. This is a case of the people involved deliberately set out to make a garbage movie. And eventually he just gets angry and decides to go have a drink about it. This is the scene where we get introduced to Winston in the bar at the army base. 
Winston is a member of the Air Force who failed to die in World War I and is very upset about it. And this scene is only here so he's not a deus ex machina when he shows up later. Anyway, everyone goes to have a drink. Apparently the boat doesn't leave till tomorrow so they can't bail as quickly as they'd like to. Like some of the cowboys show up. And then as they're drinking, the fountain runs red with food coloring. Oh my God, Brendan Fraser takes a shot and he's like, this tastes just like, turns around and looks at the fountain, blood. Brendan Fraser has drunk blood before. Uh, And also, I think in the same freaking hotel, I guess, Benny has Prince Imhotep with him, along with their blind fellow now, who's missing his his eyes and his tongue. Uh, And the mummy is in this like rad getup. He's wrapped in like silks with a mask on. I guess he just arranged this meeting with like the blind cowboy. So Imhotep could like take the rest of his organs, fluids, something like that. And he basically turns him into like a mummified looking corpse. So everybody's like, oh, Imhotep must be here. He must want to kill the cowboys. So they run upstairs and they find the dead mummified blind cowboy. And then they look in. Oh, God, it's the mummy. He's here. And then the mummy sees a cat and screams and runs away. He advances on Evie again like, hey, girl. <laughs> so so Brendan Fraser then says, OK, here's a really good plan. The mummy wants Evie. So we lock Evie in a room and then guarding her are going to be the two other people that the mummy wants to kill. So let's just put everybody that he wants in one room together and let's all go somewhere else with all the guns. Brendan Fraser is so good at plans. Brendan Fraser has kept Evie in a room basically because he had to physically put her in a room and then run out really fast and close the door before she could get to the door. She was like, are you kidding me because evie is great evie is basically another jupiter jones in this situation she gets carted around she gets damsel and distressed all over the place but she has a tremendous amount of effect on the plot and she also is necessary to the plot's conclusion i would say this one values her brains a little more than the jupiter jones situation but i mean there's still two different sorts of pretty lady is surrounded by so many hot guys her agency is routinely stripped from her but she exists in defiance to that happening it's true and she puts up more than a token amount of fuss about it. So it's not great. It's not the most feminist thing ever, but it's also not one of those movies where we're really uncomfortable about how the women are treated. Yeah, and she also dips routinely into that sort of romance female protagonist in that that does sometimes happen, but also she is wanted, respected, and looks very good. Anyway, we cut to the Egyptologist running through the alleys being scared of a mummy, and then he screams. As you do. They didn't have the budget for a lot of on-screen deaths, so most of these are like in spooky shadows that they CGI'd. And also there's no blood in this movie. So uh, Brendan Fraser and Jonathan go up to the Egyptologist's office because they figure that's where they'll find him. And they run into Benny while they're there. And Brendan Fraser physically threatens Benny a lot. A whole lot. Like he threatens to basically bump his head a lot on a fan. Except the the ceiling fan is turned up very high, and I guess it is implied it will slice his head off. Yeah, speaking of someone who's accidentally jumped into a ceiling fan multiple times, that never happens. Don't worry about it, don't ask. But then we hear a scream, like a girly scream from outside the window. And we go look at the window, and a crowd moves away as we reveal, The mummy has killed the Egyptologist! He's getting sexier, and he looks up, he looks up at them, unhinges his jaw, screams, and a whole bunch of flies come out. This is a terrible movie, I love it. Meanwhile, it 
turns out keeping the people that he wants to kill all together in a room isn't a great idea. One cowboy went out to get a drink and the other cowboy is waiting for his bourbon and bourbon with a shot of bourbon and a bourbon chaser. And then a sandstorm bursts through the window and desiccates him. And then because Evie has decided to go to sexy bed. She's in like a nighty, And she's like doing that thing where she's resting perfectly on the pillow, breathing with her lips slightly parted. All of her makeup is still on. And sand starts pouring through the keyhole. Because I guess sand is the mummy version of a vampire's mist. He turns back into Imhotep, who is mostly sexy now with some gross stuff in his face going on. He sits on Evie's bedside because she is dead asleep and then is like, hey girl. And then kisses her. And then that wakes her up and she's like, I'm realizing now this is just a vampire movie. Oh no, totally. Totally. This is just a vampire movie, but with a mummy instead. And everybody wants to kiss Evie. I could definitely do without a lot of people kissing Evie against her will in this movie. And then Brendan Fraser breaks into the room with a cat and uh, the mummy screams and then runs away again. So then they decide, well, maybe we should go to the museum to figure out where the Book of Amun-Ra is, because if the Book of the Dead brought him back, then the Book of Amun-Ra could kill him. Oh, wait a second. The museum curator, his name is Dr. Bay. That explains it. Okay. Yeah, they go to the museum and Dr. Bay and Ardeth Bay are talking together. Surprise, I'm part of a secret society. I bet you never knew. Did you go to Hominoptera, which doesn't exist? Who could have guessed? And then they all sit around on some actual f***ing artifacts to have a nice conversation. About how do we kill the mummy? They they sort of hand wave this thing where uh, Imhotep keeps calling Evie Princess Anux in a Moon by saying that like, oh, he's just going to use you to sacrifice to bring her back to life. He just needs a sacrifice. It's worth noting that Anux in a Moon's actual reincarnated soul shows up in the sequel to this movie. Yeah, as does Evie's. It's a whole thing, but we're not going to go into that now. Don't worry about it. Imhotep just needs a sacrifice and I guess he just picked the first hot lady he could find. Though I really like the idea that he just couldn't tell. He picked some bad eyes. Dude can't see shit. And then a solar eclipse occurs and Jonathan just starts quoting from the Bible. So yeah, darkness throughout the land of Egypt, although it's more like dim light throughout the land of Egypt. And then a mob shows up with boils apparently boils makes you a zombie oh my god and so get this they decide that they have to race against time so evie can translate something very quickly this isn't even the only time this happens in this movie i love it this entire mob is just chanting emhotep emhotep and then they have to like kill time so Evie can figure out where the other book actually is. And she figures out that because the Book of the Dead was under the statue of Anubis, where the Book of Amun-Ra was supposed to be, she's got to find out where the Book of Dead is supposed to be, which is under the statue of Horus. So that must be where the Book of Amun-Ra is. And really, I feel like we could have figured that out without having to translate a thing. Also, how did the Benbridge scholars fuck up that badly? Evie finally translates this and then they have to try and escape the museum. Jonathan runs out to get the car while being chased by a mob and then does the smartest thing in the movie. Which is that he pretends to be part of the mob. He just starts walking really slowly and is like, Emotep. 
Imhotep, and they buy it. Anyway, time for peasant bowling. So they basically drive down an alley with peasants who latch onto their car. And there's like peasants flying through the air as they hit them. And it's like, oh, God. Every action sequence in this movie, I swear, is a level from a video game. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So they get pretty far. At some point, they get surrounded and they're all pretty sure they're going to die. And then in comes Imhotep. Imhotep is fully regenerated now. Yeah, because he ate the last cowboy during the peasant bowling sequence. I just want you to remember that he is wearing a shirt at this point. That goes away. And then he comes out with Benny translating for him. And he basically is just like, hey, girl. Come with me and I won't kill your friends. Hey. As, as Brendan Fraser's like, no, 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 no. No, we're going to find another way. And she's like, well, you better think fast because if I become a mummy, you're the first one I'm coming after. And he says, what? And then she walks off, takes Imhotep's hand and gives him a lot of meaningful looks as Brendan Fraser's shit is completely wrecked because the woman he is very clearly in love with has just decided to give herself up to the evil sexy mummy to save him. I think that's the best line of this episode. And then as they walk off, Imhotep's like, kill him. Oh, and by the way, during this whole sequence, Evie corrects Benny's translation and calls him an idiot. This is such a good movie. And also they just escape into the sewers afterwards instead of being et. Dr. Bay heroically sacrifices himself. Because we didn't have room for him on the airplane in the next scene. And if this is like Ardeth's dad, I feel like he should be more broken up about Dr. Bay dying, but okay. Look, Ardeth Bay spends most of the movie smoldering at the camera. He's only got so many muscles on his face. So we go to the Air Force base and meet Winston again. And it's worth noting that Winston is like sitting in the middle of the desert on a lawn chair sipping tea while a local Egyptian dude is just standing there holding a parasol over him and like the perfect visual representation of English colonialism that I have ever seen. So Winston is like, I don't know, why do you want me to give you one of my planes? And they're like, well, you'll probably die. But also we're going to save the world and save the girl, I guess. And Winston's like, that sounds awesome. I'm in. They uh, they get on the plane. And the thing is, it's a two-seater plane, right? So we've got Winston piloting it. We've got Brennan Fraser in, in the gun seat. And then we've got Jonathan and Ardeth just kind of clinging to the wings. Jonathan is not having fun, but Ardeth is having a marvelous time. Ardeth has a nice little black skull cap on that matches his outfit, which means that his hat is gone for the rest of the movie so you get to see his nice sexy hair. His glorious hair. He is a good looking man. This plane is 50% good looking men. And also, oh, look at that really big sandstorm. Winston's never seen one that big. That's because it's a mummy. We cut to Evie and Benny getting chucked out of the mummy sandstorm so that the mummy can summon a different sandstorm to take down the plane. Oh my god, though, when the mummy comes out of the mummy sandstorm, his shirt is gone. It's just gone. He's not wearing a shirt or like any kind of long covering. He's got like this big freaking shrug on that's basically kind of a cloak and like a loincloth. He gets progressively more naked throughout this movie. I love it. So yeah, he makes a big old sandstorm, takes down the airplane, Evie. Several times she does this thing where she just sort of bleats out like O'Connell or Rick. And then she's like, stop it, you'll kill them. And Benny's like, I think that's the idea. So she just 
decides that she's going to distract the mummy by kissing him. I feel like there were other ways to distract the mummy that did not involve kissing him, but okay, here we are. He does get distracted, though, so... I had forgotten this part was going to happen, so, like, while we were watching it, I was like, distract him with a kiss, distract him with a kiss, and then she actually distracted him with a kiss, and this is a kiss where both of them are just staring at each other while kissing. Like, they're freaking daring each other, like, this is chicken. And the sandstorm dissipates and the plane crashes. The plane crashes and only Winston dies. Sorry, Winston. Winston, who is still strapped into the seat and is dead, and then he gets pulled into a conveniently now-it-is-quicksand pile, and then he just sort of sinks because they didn't want to deal with what to do with his body or how to deal with a plane after this. And I feel like this would be sad if he weren't in this movie for less than five minutes total. So anyway, we're back at Hominoptera. I guess. And then we find, like, a different entrance into Hominoptera that nobody used before. Cause shut up. Brendan Fraser uses this trick that Evie had shown him earlier in the movie. They had a whole bunch of reflecting mirrors to spread light around in a room. This time he does it by shooting the mirror and it somehow ends up at exactly the right angle to flood the room with light and oh my god it's the treasure room. It looks like they should have gotten into this room by descending into a living sand tiger mouth. This is the cave of freaking wonders here. They go and they find the statue of Horus and they start digging it up and as Ardeth and Brendan Fraser are trying to dig the book out. Jonathan is standing behind them going like, put your backs into it in more representation of British colonialism. And then he looks over and he sees like the blue gold beetle things on the walls. And he's like, ooh. Because what everybody wants to do in this movie is just pluck out beetles from a wall. So the thing that happens, happens. Except in another bit of continuity, Brendan Fraser shoots a bug. Yeah, first he like whips out a butterfly knife, which had not existed yet. Those had not been invented yet. And he manages to cut the bug out from under Jonathan's skin. No blood. The bug goes flying. Brennan Fraser pulls his gun and shoots a beetle, which is about an inch square from 10 paces and hits it. What a good movie. Meanwhile, Imhotep hears the gunshot down in the sacrifice chamber, summons a bunch of mummies and says, go kill those guys. They were buried in the wall and were also part of the relief. Very shortly, like Ardeth and Jonathan and Brendan Fraser encounter these mummies in the treasure room. And there's this great exchange where Brendan Fraser's like, who are these guys? And Ardeth's like, these are Imhotep's priests. And then Brendan Fraser's just like, all right. And then everyone opens fire with machine guns. And it's great. While this whole thing is going on, by the way, Evie, I guess, was knocked out at a point where we didn't see it because she wakes up and she's in sexy chains. And she's also screaming because there's a rat on her chest. How are the rats here? What would they eat? And it's a cute little rat. It's a little fancy rat. So Evie, it turns out, is strapped right next to what is now the mummified corpse of a Noxunamun. I guess they went through with the mummification and just put her body back somewhere where Imhotep could find it? Don't worry about it. It's just here now. It's fine. And then he like starts doing the chant and stuff so that his girlfriend's soul can come up from the goo like it did before. Sidebar, his girlfriend's soul came up from the goo before. And I'm pretty sure this entire ritual is just, hey girl. Anyway, the soul goo gets inside the Anuxunamun mummy. It comes back to partial life, but it won't be able to come back to full life until Evie is sacrificed. And just as Imhotep is about to plunge the knife into her chest, that's when Jonathan and Brendan Fraser show up. Ardeth, by the way, did a heroic mummy sacrifice where he ran off to like fight mummies and then a stick of dynamite got thrown. So he's like ambiguously dead at this point. So Brennan Fraser shoots off one of the chains. Evie manages to get herself mostly free until Brennan Fraser finds 
a sword and cuts off the other chain. He doesn't shoot many things for the rest of this movie. Most of it is him swinging a sword. So meanwhile, Jonathan is running around this room with a book that's locked that he can't open because it requires that same key. Which is in Imhotep's robes. It's in his loincloth. So Evie tells him to read off the cover and Jonathan eventually does. He's not very good at it, but he tries and he ends up shouting a whole bunch of mummy guards into existence. Who immediately start attacking Brendan Fraser because his life is very difficult. Because Jonathan hasn't finished reading the cover, which will allow him to control the mummies. So Imhotep takes advantage of that and just like, kill Brendan Fraser. And they're like, yes, sir. Meanwhile, Jonathan's still running around trying to read the incantation. And at one point he can't read a thing. So Evie is like shouting advice for how to pronounce things <laughs> while she's being attacked by a Nuxunamun mummy. And he like tries to describe a pictograph and she reads off the exact specific pronunciation that he would need in that instance. So he reads the incantation. As the mummy guards are about to kill Brendan Fraser, they stop just in time. In fact, one of them is poking a spear into Brendan Fraser's face. And then Jonathan orders them to kill Anuxunamun instead. And the guards do kill Anuxunamun again off camera. There's a shadow. It's very dramatic. And Imhotep is distraught. That's kind of an understatement. The love of his multiple lives has just been slain once again before he could be with her. And he just says, it. And he immediately lunges at Jonathan, trying to kill him. In the fray, Jonathan manages to sneak his hand into the loincloth. He gets the key back, and it's probably best left to the imagination how he does that. And then we get to the next phase of this long, drawn-out fight sequence, which is Evie runs around the room yelling out a book because she is trying to translate it. And once she reads what she actually needs to read aloud, a ghost chariot comes into the room drags out what must be his soul and just takes it away. And then Brandon Frazier's like, I thought you said it was gonna kill him. And Evie's like, no, he's mortal now. And Brendan Frazier stabs the crap out of him. And then he looks lost and horrified and totters back into the goo pool where I guess there are a bunch of souls down there. And as he slowly sinks in, he croaks out in what we assume is Egyptian death is only the beginning. Gotta set up that sequel. Holy crap. And then we cut back to Benny, who has been looting the Helminoptera this entire time. He saw that the getting was good, decided to just leave before this whole fight sequence started happening. So he like is dragging a bunch of gold out to the camels and he keeps going back for more gold, drops the bag onto a great big switch, the make the city descend into the desert switch. I guess it was just there in that inconspicuous hallway. So we have to make a big grand daring escape while everything is sinking. And I'm not claustrophobic, but wow, that definitely gave me some feelings about claustrophobia. Like, even if you're not claustrophobic, the prospect of scurrying under a thing while it slowly comes down to crush you is terrifying. And they don't do this like, while the ceiling is still a pretty good ways off. A lot of this scurrying is done when there is maybe about a three foot clearance that is very quickly closing. Everyone makes it out except Benny. And Brendan Fraser, without even blinking, says goodbye, Benny, and then leaves. Jesus Christ, dude. Benny's stuck in the temple as it's descending into the desert in the dark. And then his torch slowly goes out as the scuttling of an army of beetles rolls into the room. 
Benny's eaten to death by beetles. How are you? So we get out to the desert and Jonathan's like, no, I can't plunder the history of another culture for money. And Ardeth Bay's like, hey. Yeah, he's alive, by the way. He's fine. Not even any singe marks. Guess who's just that hot? How's it going? He's like, yo, thanks for helping to kill the mummy. See ya. And he just leaves. And meanwhile, they have two camels now. Oh, and by the way, this is a culmination between uh, Brennan Fraser and Evie because there have been more than a couple of times in this movie where Evie has stumbled because of like an earthquake or something and Brennan Fraser has caught her and held her right at like the hip slash the elbows and sort of like absently stroked her arm with his thumb. And now they're doing this again, except this time they just have smooches. It's the big damn kiss. This is the only heterosexual couple I care about. And what a couple to care about. Oh, it's so good. Oh, and then they ride off on the camel. Jonathan gets one and then Brennan and Evie share another. And while we were watching this, because Brennan Fraser is actually driving the camel, Joan was like, oh, but Evie was the better camel rider. And I said, yes, but now Evie can sit in his lap and smooch the whole time without having to worry about driving. Distracted camel driving law. And so I guess they just, without any supplies other than a bunch of gold, they're just going to go back to civilization and then make a baby. Which is the sequel. The mummy returns, we made a baby. And that's the movie. So you could probably tell from us saying it repeatedly, but this is the best movie ever made. Look at this piece of garbage, this B-movie garbage. Garbage. This isn't like accidental garbage. This is the same guy who did the G.I. Joe movie a couple of years later. This is a guy who knew exactly what kind of movie he wanted to make. This is like the movie equivalent of the book you choose to bring with you to the beach. It's not saying anything. It's just saying, hey guys, adventure movie and kissing. Ladies. Mm, mummy ladies. This is a movie that wants you to have a good time. Which leads us to why we decided to talk about the mummy now. You see, there's another mummy movie coming out. And it's got Tom Cruise in it. Tom Cruise. Tom fucking Cruise. Let's let that sink in a little. Tom Cruise turned this movie down. Tom Cruise, you turned this movie down and now you're trying to cash in on its success 18 years later. Just chill. Tom Cruise is 54 years old. About the only thing this new Mummy movie has going for it is that Sofia Boutella is playing the mummy. Like that's the only thing I can get marginally excited for. This is also the first movie in Universal's... Universal Monsters shared universe franchise. Uh, nobody asked for this. I need you guys to know that this movie is also cast Russell Crowe as Dr. Henry Jekyll slash Mr. Hyde. No, nobody wants this. We do not need more shared universe movies. We're already hitting critical mass on them. We are obviously like not indiscriminately hateful of remakes because we love this movie, the 1999 Mummy movie, and it is a remake. Let's just go down a list here of the only thing that would possibly merit making a new mummy movie. One, casting people that are actually from the region where you're supposed to set this movie. Two, maybe make the female character the main character, like the the main main character. Maybe make her the protagonist. Three, add more cats. All the cats. Also, if you could somehow get Brendan Fraser back, but he was young, hot Brendan Fraser. That'd be nice too. None of these things are being done with this 2017 mummy movie that stars Tom frickin' Cruise. I feel like we got to keep coming back to the fact that Tom Cruise is in this fucking movie. Tom fucking Cruise. Tom Cruise is living proof that if you're white enough and male enough in Hollywood, people don't really care how many cults you're in. Look, you don't need to make a new mummy movie, especially if you're going to make it some kind of dark, gritty action movie. You already have the 1999 The Mummy. A movie that is so very self-aware. It knows exactly what it is. It is B-movie schlock and it loves itself and it loves you. You don't need to make a gritty remake of that. 
Plus, like, seeing the trailers for the Tom Cruise and the Mummy, the color palette is largely, like, gray and white. Gray, white, and honestly, a lot of brown, too. So they're obviously going for the, we're realistic and gritty. Yeah, yeah, but it's not, like, rich brown. It's, like, pale, washed-out brown. Whereas this Mummy movie, everything is gold and rich brown, and it's amazing. Let's just go out with a general warning here. In June, you might be tempted to go see Tom Cruise in a Mummy movie. Don't do that. Movie tickets are expensive now? Just go rent the Mummy. Just hang out at home, make yourself a nice bucket of popcorn and love yourself. So I think that is gonna wrap us up here. <gasps> mummy yeah, joke. Mummy, mummy joke. joke. That was a mummy joke I did there. Rapping like like a mummy. Oh god. And let's do our final facts. Mac, what's your final fact? That if we all could be librarian explorer Egyptologists, we'd all be a happier people. Kit, what's your final fact? If you're going to make garbage, you gotta commit to the garbage. You can't pretend you're not making garbage. Annie, what's your final fact? My final fact is that Brendan Fraser was a hottie and a good actor, though he was never in any good movies. All right, folks, hopefully we have completely convinced you of the very obvious fact that you don't need to make any more mummy movies because the 1999 The Mummy movie is the Ur Mummy. Join us next time when we will present you with the indisputable fact that The Transformers is a cautionary tale for licensed properties. Kit Light's Transformers, she's going to be telling us a story and I'm excited. Excited. I like Transformers. I Will Fight You comes out just about every six weeks on iTunes, Podbean, YouTube, and Stitcher. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and Tumblr at crookedrussiancam.tumblr.com, as well as over on our main podcast, The Gem Jam, which is a weekly episodic recap of Gem and the Holograms. You can also find us at Gem Jam Cast on Twitter. And really, you can just kind of Google us. You can find us just about everywhere. We're most places where you find podcasts. Don't worry about it. If you like what we do and you want to support us, a like, rating, review, subscribe, we're you find our podcast is super great helps our metrics and we like hearing about ourselves because we like attention which is why we're recording this really uh, if you want to support us financially you can do that we're on patreon.com slash the gem jam join us next time and until then dear listeners i'm annie i'm kit and i'm mac and we have fought you oh.